All right. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Good to see you all. Let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we look at a serious topic today, something that's sad but also beautiful and glorious. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and emboldened and help me to be able to explain this well. In Jesus' name, amen. Continuing in our study today of church history and specifically the early church. Last time we looked at gospel expansion. We saw how God prepared the way for a massive harvest of saved souls, both in the Roman Empire and beyond it. This harvest was not brought about by a few powerful preachers preaching to multitudes, but rather it was many simple Christians engaging in gospel conversations with those that they met and those that they knew. One loving heart setting another heart on fire. And these early Christians backed up their words with their lives. Not perfect lives, not perfect living, but noticeably holy living. Devotion to Jesus and a devotion that persevered through trial and suffering. And it is an aspect of the suffering of the early Christian witness that I want to discuss with you today. This is lesson three in our series, Suffering for Christ. And as an introduction to this topic... I want you to consider what might seem like an odd statement from Acts 5.41. Acts 5.41, this, is, this appears right after we're told the 12 apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, governing council, and warned not to preach about Jesus anymore. Here's what Acts 5.41 says the disciples did. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now let that verse sink into your mind a little bit. The apostles didn't rejoice because they had been delivered from persecution. They didn't die. They could have rejoiced about that. They didn't rejoice, at least the text says, they didn't rejoice because they had preached Christ faithfully to the wicked Sanhedrin. They could have rejoiced about that too. The text says they specifically rejoiced that God had considered them worthy to suffer shame for his name. In other words, the apostles sought a happy privilege and honor to be beaten for Jesus' sake. Now, does that compute for you? It's similar to what we actually heard last week from Paul in his letter to the Philippians. I mentioned this is kind of like a theme verse, one of the theme verses for the early church, Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The text says it has been granted. What does that phrasing indicate? The Lord allowed it, but it's more than that. He ordained it. It's even more than that. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a joy, even, to suffer for Christ's sake. But is that the way you and I think about suffering, persecution, experiencing pain as a Christian? Not simply, oh, Lord, this is difficult. Help me to stand. Bring me deliverance. And those are right impulses and thoughts. But also, thank you, Lord Jesus, that I am allowed to suffer for you right now. 
I submit that in our comfortable, prosperous, 21st century American Christian culture, we need our minds renewed specifically when it comes to persecution and suffering. And our brethren in the early church are going to help us with that this morning. The early church is known for suffering persecution. But what exactly were the persecutions? Why were Christians persecuted in the first place? And how did they respond to persecution? We're going to explore each of those today. Let's start with what persecutions did the early Christians suffer? To answer that question, generally, early Christians experienced the same sufferings that Christians have always experienced and are still experiencing in many ways across the world right now. They experienced gossip, mockery, slander, hatred, loss of property, loss of position, loss of employment, enslavement, imprisonment, injury, torture, and death. Even shameful execution conducted in front of and for the entertainment of others. But contrary to what we might expect, the persecution of the first four centuries was not constant. It was not universal, and it was not always government-led. Rather, persecution came in waves. It was often regional, and it was often led by mobs or private Roman citizens. Standard policy for Roman rulers in this period was not to actively seek out Christians to persecute them. But if persons were openly accused and brought into court for being Christians, which was illegal, Roman rulers would force Christians to recant under threats and torture, and if they would, they'd be let go, no further penalty. But if they would not, they would be executed. That's standard Roman policy. Furthermore, if a local mob of Romans called out for Christian blood due to some incident, Roman rulers often turned a blind eye or even assisted the mob in giving it what it wanted. Thus, from a human perspective, the safety of early Christians often depended on the goodwill of their neighbors or of a sympathetic local official. Persecution could erupt without warning and overturn and even end the lives of many Christians. And it's still like that in certain places in the world today. Now, persecution did change over time. It was increasingly emperor-led and widespread. Now, when did persecution start for the early church? Well, right at the beginning, basically as soon as the church was born. But according to the book of Acts, who were the first persecutors? Not Nero, actually. It was the Jews. The earliest persecutors were not the Romans, but Jews. And rather than persecuting Christians in the book of Acts, what do we see the Roman government often doing instead? Protecting Christians. <laughs> yeah, remember Saul's... Uh, Paul's about to be killed in Jerusalem, and it's the Roman centurion who kind of breaks things up. Or there's a, a, a riot that breaks out, I forget which city it is, where they want the apostle to be dealt with, and the Gallio, the, the 
leader there, he says, look, guys, <laughs> if you want to deal with this, if you have a complaint, it's got to be done in an orderly way. You can go to the courts, but this, this is not right. So actually, we see the Roman government interceding to protect Christians. And why is that? Well, you see, at first, Christianity was not regarded as its own separate religion, but just a sect of Judaism. There were different sects in Judaism. There were the Zealots, there were the Essenes, there were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, and Christians just appeared to be another sect. Therefore, certain zealous Jews, Pharisees especially, like Saul of Tarsus before his conversion, they saw this sect as heretical, as dangerous to the kingdom of Israel and to Judaism as a religion, so they sought to violently repress it. But the Romans, the polytheistic, pragmatic Romans, they had come to generally tolerate that strange Jewish religion, that strange ancestral religion. It has a whole bunch of different sects within it. That's fine. They can do whatever they want. But Romans felt obligated to restore order when any Jewish religious squabble got out of control. And so they would do that to Christians' benefit. As time went on, though, Romans began to regard Christianity as something different from Judaism. It became clear that this is not some ancient, national, and benign religion. This was, in the Romans' view, a new religion, international in character, and threatening to overturn both the social and political order because of Christianity's incessant evangelism. After all, by the end of the first century, Jewish rabbis were forbidding Christians from coming into synagogues and even pronouncing a curse on Christians as part of the synagogue services. Moreover, Christians did not participate in the Jewish rebellions against Rome in A.D. 66, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, nor the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132, which resulted in the slaughter and enslavement of many Jews. Christians didn't participate. So Roman rulers from multiple angles were realizing these Christians are not Jews. These Christians are different, and they're dangerous. Between the start of the church in A.D. 30 and the Edict of Milan in A.D. 313, there were at least nine waves of persecution led by Roman emperors against Christians. I know that writing's a little bit small. I will be publishing the slides in the afternoon today, so you can have a more readable version. At least nine waves of persecution. We don't have time to go through all of these waves specifically. I provided this chart to give you a little bit of overview information. I want to highlight a few emperors, though, especially the first emperor to officially persecute Christians. And who is that? Well, one of the most infamous emperors, probably in our minds, Nero. Certain disaster triggered Nero's attack on Christians. What was that disaster? Yeah, I hear you saying it, Cheryl. It was a fire, the Great Fire of Rome in A.D. 64. The secular first century historian, a Roman historian, Tacitus, reports that a massive fire burned for days in Rome. It killed many, and it destroyed or severely damaged much of the city, 10 of the city's 14 districts. Cause of the fire was unknown. It still is unknown. Could have been arson. Probably it was just an accident. Yet there was a rumor among the Romans about who started it. What was the rumor? Well, before, before they turned to the Christians, they, it was, they actually thought it was someone else. Nero himself started it. 
why would Nero want to burn Rome? Yeah, people said, you know, he has all these grand plans for building. He wanted to destroy the city so he can build it as he wanted. Or, why else would he have done it? Well, he would have certainly uh, hurt his standing with the Romans if he had indeed burned the city of Rome. Uh, we'll talk about how he sought to salvage his reputation after these rumors. But it wasn't about new repu reputation. Nero was known for his love of the theatrical. He would uh, do chariot races. He, he was a singer, a musician. He wrote poetry. And so some were saying that Nero started this just so that he could have a dramatic backdrop to some musical performance. While Rome is burning behind him, he's playing his lyre or he's singing a song. Or maybe he just wanted some sort of inspiration for this great poem he was going to write, and so he destroyed the city. And you say, that seems pretty crazy. Well, they thought he was crazy, or at least some people did. They thought Nero was insane. Some people were saying this. Now, these rumors were almost certainly not true. Uh, actually, Tacitus says that Nero was not even in Rome when the fire broke out, but when he learned of the fire, he came back immediately and did a decent job of trying to put out the fire and helping the community recover. But Nero was unpopular enough at this point in his reign that he was wary of rumors further undermining, undermining his rule, and so he searched for a scapegoat. And who better than the disliked and secretive Christians? Listen to what Tacitus himself says what happened in his annals. Quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, basically forced to plead guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus, that is the Circus Maximus, the chariot arena, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they, the Christians, were being destroyed. Now, this is an arresting account of the first Roman persecution against Christians for several reasons. First, because Tacitus confesses that Christians are worthy of death for all their abominations. 
Second, because even Tacitus confesses that Nero went too far with these punishments and actually aroused pity and compassion from the Roman populace on behalf of Christians. And third, because of the humiliating and deadly cruelty that was suddenly exhibited against Christians who had done nothing wrong. Now, some later church historians claim that Nero issued an empire-wide edict against Christians. Perhaps that's true. Modern historians have not yet found evidence for that. The Neronian persecution seems to have been confined to Rome itself and the surrounding area. But whether it was empire-wide or just around Rome, it was a devastating persecution. And it resulted in the martyrdom of many believers, including two apostles. After writing 2 Peter, Peter was crucified under Nero, apparently upside down. After writing 2 Timothy, Paul was beheaded in Rome, given a more honorable death than crucifixion since Paul was a Roman citizen. The books of 1 Peter and Hebrews, considering their obvious backdrop of persecution, may also have been written in the shadow of Nero's attack. So books of scripture were written in this context. Not exactly clear how long this persecution lasted, but it seems to have lasted until Nero's death by suicide in the face of a coup in AD 68. So Nero was the first. You see some other ones here. I'll just mention two other emperors particularly. Domitian. Domitian is the emperor whose persecution from AD 90 to 96 forms the context of the Apostle John's Exile to Patmos, the book of Revelation, and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, most likely. And that persecution seems to have centered on Rome and Asia Minor. Diocletian, with his co-emperor Galerius, is the emperor who presided over the last wave of emperor-led persecution. This was from AD 303 to 311, sometimes called the Great Persecution, because it was the most widespread and vicious. It truly was empire-wide. This persecution first began as a ban on Christians assembling for worship, and then the destruction of all Christian scriptures and churches. Hand them over. We're going to destroy your scriptures. But eventually, spurred on by Galerius, who seemed to hate Christians, Diocletian called for all Christians to be rounded up, tortured, and executed if they would not recant and offer proper sacrifices. Many of our early brethren suffered and died in this final persecution, along with the other persecutions. But you know what? It failed. This effort to stamp out Christianity failed. Indeed, every wave of targeted persecutions against Christians in the Roman Empire eventually failed because popular support turned against it, so it was no longer effective, or the emperors who were leading it died, often violently, or were captured. Thus, in the Roman Empire, we see the Lord's promises in Scripture prove true once again. He will not let evil people get away with their sin forever, and he will eventually vindicate the righteous. And when it comes to his church, that general promise will never fail Matthew 16, 18, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The grave, even the attacks of the evil one, will never destroy God's church. Never totally destroy.
But perhaps you're wondering, why were Christians considered so evil and dangerous in the first place? Do people not know what Christians are about? Well, now we look at the second question. Why were Christians persecuted? One theologically correct way to answer that question is Satan. Satan hates God and all the children of God, and therefore directs his slaves, those under his power, directs the nations and rulers, the powers of the world, and his fellow fallen angels to persecute and destroy God's church. He's always about this. That's why it happened in the Roman Empire. And of course, God will one day judge Satan and his minions for this evil. But another theologically correct way to answer this question of why persecution is God. After all, God has Satan on a leash. He only allows Satan to do whatever God has ordained for God's own good purposes. So in the early church, it was God who brought the persecution. It was God who was using the persecution to spread the gospel, purify his church, bless his people, and put his glory on display in a special way before the universe. These are both theologically correct biblical answers. But what were the human reasons for persecution? What excuses did the Romans give for hating these abominable Christians? Well, four main reasons. And I'll go through those with you briefly. First, outrageous rumors. Christians often met in secret. And anytime you have a secret society, people begin to say the wildest things about what that society does in secret. And I'm sure you can think of weird rumors about secret societies like the Freemasons or the Templars, these secret groups, what they, people said they did. Well, the same thing happened with Christians during the early church. Rumors about Christians were wild and often based off of a misunderstanding of what Christians actually did. For example, Romans accused Christians of being cannibals, of even eating babies. That's crazy. Why would they think that? Well, Christians talked about eating the body and blood of the Lord. And Christians had a penchant for taking care of, or going and picking up babies that had been left in the trash heap or some other place because people didn't want them. Christians would take them and care for them themselves. But the Romans thought, they're eating those babies. That's why they're always talking about eating the body and blood. Christians are cannibals. They also accused Christians of incest and of immoral parties. What? Where did you get that from? Christians always called each other brother and sister, even if they were married to their spouse. They married their brother and sister? And they always talked about these love feasts that they would have whenever they got together. They must be having some terrible, perverse party. And so they, people made up and believed these rumors about Christians. And this, of course, put Christians in a catch-22. They had to meet in secret because of persecution. But the more that they met in secret, the more that people made up rumors about what they were doing and persecuted them. These rumors would ultimately subside, but they were one reason that people hated and were suspicious of Christians. Second reason why Romans hated Christians was atheism. And you might say, atheism? What are you talking about? I know that sounds weird. Why were Christians being accused of atheism? Well, it's because atheism meant something different, according to the Romans. The problem was that 
wasn't that Christians didn't believe in a God, but they didn't acknowledge and serve and sacrifice to the Roman gods. And this was a big problem. If your society and your government believes that temperamental gods will send you massive problems if the people are not faithful enough. Kind of like those Christmas programs about Santa. If not enough people believe in Santa, what's going to happen? Santa goes away. His sleigh won't be powered. Gifts won't come. Christmas will be ruined. So we got to get people to believe in Santa. If you don't believe in Santa, everybody else is going to suffer. Well, it's kind of like this for the Romans, except for them, it's more like if not enough people sacrifice to the gods or if we have Christians in our government, we Romans are going to lose battles against the barbarians and the gods are not going to send us their communications via oracles and omens anymore. And circumstantial experience seemed to confirm this for the Romans. This is why Tertullian says in the second century, remember he's a church leader and writer, quote, if the Tiber floods the city, that's the river near Rome, or the Nile refuses to rise, or the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake, famine, or pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. That is, let's execute Christians by beasts in the arena for causing all this. There's another saying at that time, no rain because of the Christians. So apparent atheism was a persistent reason for the Romans to persecute Christians. And Christians couldn't do much about it. If Christians were being true to Christ, they could not help but deny the Roman gods. All they could do was try to persuade people that the gods weren't real. So Christians weren't really hurting society by not serving the gods. So outrageous rumors, atheism were both reasons. A third reason why Romans persecuted Christians was Antisocial behavior. Antisocial behavior. Besides being very secretive about their meetings, Christians noticeably did not take part in many activities considered quintessentially Roman. Christians were taking seriously Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 21 to flee idolatry. Don't even go near the table of demons. So Christians didn't go to Rome's community events and festivals which all involved some sort of recognition or sacrifice or praise to the gods. Christians also didn't get involved in government, generally, since government posts involved recognition and placation of the gods. Everybody was interested in government at that time, if you were a Roman citizen. Christians also didn't take part in the drunken parties and other immoral entertainments of the Romans, such as the theater and the gladiatorial games. It's like Christians were trying to avoid everything that the Romans loved because it was sinful. But how did the Romans respond? Well, exactly as 1 Peter 4, 3 and 5 says. They maligned Christians for being hateful, even holier than now, because they would not run into the same dissipations as unbelievers. And the same is still true, isn't it? However, Accusing Christians of being unloving and hateful didn't really make sense. And why not? Because what are Christians doing at the same time? They're, they're doing 
charitable things for all the people that the Romans won't even touch. Taking care of orphans, taking care of the sick, visiting people in prison. These are a hateful people. These are people who hate mankind. It didn't make any sense. And this is actually according to the directive even given to us in the letter of 1 Peter and other places. It's no accident that those early Christians were given this exhortation to live holy among the Gentiles so that Gentiles would become ashamed of their own slander when they see the good works of Christians. That's 1 Peter 2.12 and 1 Peter 3.16. And of course, the same is true today. We're going to be maligned. We're going to be slandered, but we're gonna, we are called to bring those slanderers to be ashamed of themselves when they see our excellent living among them. Keep your behavior excellent, trusting God to convict and bring vindication at the proper time. The persecution was fueled by outrageous rumors, perceived atheism, and antisocial behavior. But finally, the most significant reason for persecution was stubborn devotion to Christ and not Caesar. The Roman government of the early centuries saw itself, not some god, as the final authority. As the final authority. And the emperor actually considered himself God. Therefore, for Christians to follow a strange religion that had not been permitted by the government, to refuse to honor and sacrifice to the gods that were set up by the state, and to abstain from all activities that were inherently Roman, this was not simply antisocial or sacrilegious. It was treason. It was disloyalty. The more that pagan rulers, pagan emperors, understood what Christians were about, the more they wanted to persecute them, not less. Because Christians, in their minds, were a fundamental threat to the state's absolute authority and agenda. This stubborn refusal to honor and seek the state above Christ, it became a chief reason for persecution, the chief reason. Let me show you an example. Consider Pliny the Younger again. He was the governor of Bithynia, northwest Turkey, during the early 2nd century. I mentioned him a little bit to you before. He wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan about Christians in 112. I shared a piece of that letter with you before. Here's another part. Pliny writes to Trajan, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, the emperors, which I ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with statues of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do, these I thought should be discharged. Here's Emperor Trajan's reply. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny. The Christians are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, 
Even though he was under suspicion in the past, they obtained pardon through repentance. Some irony there. Now, Pliny wrote his letter to Trajan because Pliny wasn't sure he was dealing with the Christians appropriately. But even without instruction from the emperor, Pliny figured that those who obstinately refused to submit to Rome's orders, in particular religious rules, who did not seek approval from Rome before carrying out a new form of worship, well, they deserved punishment, even capital punishment. And the emperor confirmed that Pliny had acted rightly. But how could Christians do anything different? As the apostle said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5.29, you must obey God rather than men. Christians not only had a different ultimate authority, but a fundamentally different set of interests than the rulers of the empire. The situation is not unlike what we see in many countries today, where rulers and governments expect their people's interests to coincide with the interests of the state. Christianity, or at least Christianity that's not sponsored by the state, is seen as a dangerous undermining influence to the government and its agenda of recognition of the state's ruling party, unity around state-promoted values, and devotion to the strengthening of, the expansion of, and the preservation of the state. And so, Christians are persecuted. But we Christians are not ultimately concerned with an earthly kingdom or its agenda. We are concerned with Christ's kingdom and the gospel agenda. We will honor governments for God's sake, but they're not our ultimate interest. Roman rulers saw this fundamental clash of interests and loyalties as a true threat to the empire, especially as more and more Romans were becoming Christians. So even when popular support for persecuting Christians waned, the government, the emperors, still made concerted efforts to eliminate Christians from the empire. So we've seen what the persecutions were and why they emerged and increased. And now we turn to our last question. How did Christians respond to persecution? Not all Christians responded the same way. There were four main types of response. The first is compromise. I wish I could tell you that all professing early Christians endured in the face of persecution. But not only is that untrue, it's not what the Bible would lead us to expect. The sad fact is that in the early church, when the mobs came, when Christians were dragged to court, when the Roman emperors demanded sacrifice or else, many Christians denied their Lord. They made the sacrifices to the gods. They hailed Caesar as Lord, and they cursed Christ. Sometimes these compromisers even betrayed their brethren. They informed the Romans about other Christians, or they testified falsely against Christians. Now, how could this be? How could real Christians compromise like this? What do you think? There's a fair question of whether they were real Christians. First John says they went out from us because they were never of us. So some of this happened because they were just seeds among rocks. Uh, yes, someone else. Jesus said, you deny me, I'll deny you. 
So many of these weren't real Christians. But is that the only reason? It could be that real Christians simply yielded to sin in a moment of weakness. And we see this in the Bible, chiefly in Peter. He denied Christ three times. He was one of his closest disciples. He was a true believer, but he was fearful. He was shaken because things were not working out the way he wanted. He was ready to stand up for Christ with his sword in the garden. But after that, he was so afraid, he couldn't even acknowledge himself as a disciple. And Christians may also have rationalized their behavior, even as we see rationalizations appear in the Bible. Remember 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, an idol is nothing. It doesn't really matter if we eat food sacrificed to idols. I'm sure Christians were doing the same thing. It's not a big deal if I deny Jesus temporarily or make this sacrifice. I mean, it's not a real God. I'm just speaking words. And rationalize their sin. Not everyone compromised, of course. But certain areas, certain times, or no, I want to say it this way. Certain areas and certain times were worse than others when it came to compromise. In particular, Christians who were in areas that had never seen persecution before or had not seen it for a long time, that's where you found Christians who most commonly faltered in the face of persecution. But there was little solace found for those who temporarily strayed, who shipwrecked their faith by denying Jesus because the guilt and sorrow that came with that was often too much to bear. And many who denied Jesus often came back and presented themselves as martyrs, especially when they saw their brethren being faithful when they weren't. Or if they didn't come back immediately, the next time persecution came around, they suffered. They suffered gladly, even to death. Actually, what the surviving church should do with compromised Christians who returned to the church after the persecution died down became a very contentious issue in the early centuries, the third and fourth centuries in particular. We don't have time to discuss it now, but if you want to learn more, check out the Novationist and Donatist controversies. It almost, some historians say, it almost destroyed the church. What do we do with these lapsed Christians? But one way that Christians responded to persecution was compromise. Another is, they fled. They hid or fled from persecution. If persecution was stirring up in a particular town, the Christians would leave and go somewhere else until the persecution went, died down, went to other cities, or maybe they went out into caves in the wilderness. Actually, as an example, when persecution broke out in Carthage, North Africa, in the 3rd century, Cyprian, who was the main church leader there, and he's an important church father, prolific writer, he fled to another town. And actually, many Christians at the time criticized him for doing this. We should ask, is fleeing itself a form of compromise? Yeah, Dwayne. That's right. God did tell Joseph to flee with Jesus, and we have some other scriptures to consider. Uh, it's kind of like we have two opposing truths in the Bible we would probably assume that fleeing was a bad thing because many times people flee out of fear or cowardice. And Christians are not to be fearful. They are not to be cowardly. Actually, Revelation 21.8, which, remember, was written in the context of the Domitian persecution, says that the cowardly, along with murderers and adulterers and the like, they do not have a place in New Jerusalem, but rather in the lake of fire forever. So, 
seems like fleeing is obviously a wrong thing to do. You don't want to be a coward. And yet, as Wayne pointed out, Joseph fled with the baby Jesus. And Jesus and the apostles sometimes fled or hid from persecution. It says people tried to kill Jesus, and he passed out of their midst. He didn't just wait around for them to kill him many times. He went away. Or the apostles, Peter's being led down through a window in the wall, or he's going from one city to another. In fact, Jesus even commanded his disciples to flee in one instance. In Matthew 10, verses 16 and 23, this is what Jesus says. This is when he's sending out his, his disciples to 12 cities, or no, to various cities in Israel, 12 disciples. Matthew 10, 16 and 23, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Wait a second. How do we reconcile this? Don't be a coward, but also be ready to flee persecution? How do we bring those together? I submit that the key to answering this question comes in Jesus' own command that we just read. He says, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next for, what's the reason? You won't finish going through the cities of Israel until Jesus comes. In other words, there will be plenty of other places that will need the gospel too. Go where you can be effective. So here's how I think we can state the biblical balance. Fleeing or hiding from persecution is wrong if it means you stop sharing the gospel or you stop doing what the Bible calls you to do, like gathering with your brethren, Hebrews 10, 24. But fleeing or hiding from persecution is right and wise when you have the opportunity to minister elsewhere or minister remotely. That's actually what Cyprian did when he fled Carthage. Even though he wasn't there, he continued to minister to the Christians there via messengers and also Christians elsewhere. Of course, he was later martyred. Now, is it wrong to stay and face persecution if you have an opportunity to flee? Well, no, especially if you see gospel advantage in doing so. After all, Paul was glad to face persecution in Jerusalem, even though he knew it was coming. He didn't flee from that because he says, God has a purpose for me in going there. But neither is it wrong to minister elsewhere for a time. We aren't going to finish going through all parts of the world until the Son of Man comes. And certainly when persecution and martyrdom cannot be avoided, when there is no way to flee or hide, the Bible instructs us not to worry, but to embrace persecution and even martyrdom as an honor and a joy in Christ. Yeah, Glenda. John who? Oh, John Mark. Right. 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 Okay. What about John Mark? Did he leave the ministry for a good reason or not? I don't want to deal with that right now because I want to make sure we have enough time for the rest of the class. But I think there is an answer to that, and maybe we can talk about it afterwards. It's a good question. I also want to say this. In my opinion, I think some Christians in this early period began to exalt suffering and martyrdom too much where those things became ends and goals in and of themselves rather than means to share the gospel, proclaim the worthiness of Christ, and love the brethren. Sometimes it looks like people were trying to be martyred when they didn't need to. 
So some Christians compromised, some Christians fled. Third response of Christians was to defend. Amid persecution, some Christians stood up to offer legal defense for other Christians, especially in the court of public opinion. We call these men early church apologists. Now, apologists back then were a little different from today's apologists who often focus on the historical or scientific credibility of the Bible. These early apologists, they published arguments about specific issues, namely that none of the outrageous rumors about the Christians were true, that Christians were good citizens and a great benefit to Roman society, that the Roman government was unjust in persecuting Christians, and that the gospel is not some wicked superstition, but instead rational truth. These apologists also responded to the attacks and critiques of Christianity from unbelieving Romans. Now, I really love these early apologists because, oh, many of them are from the second century, by the way. There's a whole group called the second century apologists. That's what those five pictures are of. But I love these guys because they're an example of what the Bible calls us all to do. Christians using their skills, their gifts, whatever they have on behalf of Christ and his church, their brothers and sisters. These guys were former philosophers, skilled debaters and rhetoricians. And what better way to apply those skills than in the defense of suffering brethren before the public? Now, how effective were the apologists in stopping persecution or dealing with persecution? That's a bit of a debate. Philosophers often address their writings to the Roman emperors, but the emperors probably never read what these persons wrote certainly weren't swayed by them. Nevertheless, others heard and read the writings of these apologists. The apologists surely played a role in the encouragement of suffering believers, the evangelism of Romans, and the changing of popular opinion toward Christianity. So they certainly had an impact. Later in the course, I'll share with you some of the writings and more specifically about the persons, these apologists. Of course, in our current cultural climate with increasing hostility toward Christianity, even legally, we're going to continue to need people like this, people who are able and willing to stand up for their brethren, even in court or in the court of popular opinion, to defend them. Finally, the fourth and really main way that Christians responded to persecution is they suffered. They simply chose to suffer. And this is what I've been leading through up, really, for the whole class. And we already have an idea of what this suffering entails. Every kind of pain, humiliation, and loss, even unto death. I've already mentioned in a previous class how the apostles happily suffered and even died because they would not deny Jesus, and they would not stop gospel work. Many other believers followed in their footsteps and in the footsteps of Christ. There are, of course, too many stories of the martyrs for me to share even half of them with you, especially with the small amount of time we have left. But I do want to share at least one story with you, one excerpt of one story of a martyrdom, and this is the martyrdom of a woman named Blandina. I do recommend that you also read some other martyrdom accounts. Read about the martyrdom of Polycarp and the martyrdom of Perpetua. I've, I've listed the documents, the early documents that contain these records. These are considered some of the more reliable among the early martyrdom accounts, and I think they will be informative and encouraging to you. But I want to share with you about Blandina. Who was Blandina? 
Blandina was a Christian slave woman who was martyred along with some other believers in a local persecution in Lugdunum, which is present-day Lyon in France. Don't know anything about this woman except what is written in a letter from the churches of Vienna and Lugdunum to churches of Asia and Phrygia, written around A.D. 178. The letter opens by describing a severe persecution and also describing in particular one group of rounded-up Christians being brought before the local governor. After explaining how some of the rounded-up Christians denied Christ, what the author calls they proved abortions because they were fearful, and also describing how certain terrified household slaves who belonged to the Christians They just said whatever the crowd wanted to hear. And they said, yes, they are committing incest. Yes, they are eating babies. After these two things, the eyewitness author describes how the crowd then unleashed its rage on the group. And especially on Blandina. Now, I'm going to try and read this to you. I know I'm probably going to get emotional in it. But um, I think it's important for us to hear. I've got ten different slides here. Then at last... The holy witnesses suffered tortures beyond all description, Satan striving eagerly that some of the evil reports might be acknowledged by them. That is, they would confess, yeah, we are committing incest and all that. But in an exceeding degree did the whole wrath of mob, general, and soldier fall on Sanctus, a deacon from Vienna, and on Maturus, a newly enlightened but noble combatant, and on Attalus, a native of Pergamus, who had always been the pillar and foundation of the church there. And on Blandina, through whom Christ showed that the things that to men appear mean and deformed and contemptible are with God deemed worthy of great glory on account of love to him. A love which is not a mere boastful appearance, but shows itself in the power which it exercised over the life. For while we were all afraid, especially her mistress in the flesh, that is the one who owned Blandina as a, sh- as, a, as a slave, who was herself one of the combatants among the witnesses, that she would not be able to make a, a bold confession on account of the weakness of her body. Blandina was filled with such power that those who tortured her one after the other in every way from morning till evening were wearied and tired, confessing that they had been baffled for they had no other torture they could apply to her. And they were astonished that she remained in life when her whole body was torn and opened up, and they gave their testimony that only one of the modes of torture employed ought to have been enough, ought to have been sufficient to have deprived her of life, not to speak of so many excruciating inflictions. But the blessed woman, like a noble athlete, recovered her strength in the midst of the confession and her declaration, I am a Christian and there is no evil done amongst us, brought her refreshment and rest and insensibility to all the sufferings inflicted on her. Pause there for a second. What were the Christians at first fearing about Blandina? She wouldn't be able to hold up. She was old. She was frail. But the torturers could not break her. Neither would she die. And even when she weakened, she became renewed and confessed Christ again. 
denying that the charges against the believers were true. The letter goes on to describe how the people attempted to kill Blandina. Blandina was hung up, fastened to a stake, and exposed as food to the wild beasts that were let loose against her. And through her presenting the spectacle of one suspended on something like a cross, and through her earnest prayers, she inspired the combatants with great eagerness. For in the combat they saw, by means of their sister, with their bodily eyes, him who was crucified for them, that he might persuade those who trust in him that everyone that has suffered for the glory of Christ has eternal communion with the living God. When none of the wild beasts at that time touched her, she was taken down from the stake and conveyed back to prison. She was thus reserved for another contest in order that gaining the victory in many preparative conflicts, she might make the condemnation of the crooked serpent unquestionable and that she might encourage the brethren. For though she was an insignificant, weak, and despised woman, yet she was clothed with the great and invincible athlete Christ. And on many occasions, she had overpowered the adversary and in the course of the contest had woven for herself the crown of incorruption. So to pause again here. Rather than accomplish her execution, what had the persecutors unwittingly done by hanging her up on a stake? They emboldened her and her brethren because they saw something that reminded them of Jesus. And they were reminded of their communion with him. You know, it's funny, I don't have this included in the slides, but the narrator later explains that Due to the steadfastness of Blandina and the other sufferers, some of those who earlier denied being Christians came back, and they said, we will suffer with our brethren. And they were martyred as well. They rejoiced in Jesus to do so. Well, Blandina herself was eventually killed. But not before further encouraging her brothers and sisters in Christ. After all these, on the last day of the gladiatorial shows, Blandina was again brought in along with Ponticus, a boy of about 15 years of age. These two had been taken daily to the amphitheater to see the tortures which the rest endured, and force was used to compel them to swear by the idols of the heathen. But on account of their remaining steadfastness and setting all their persecutors' devices at naught, the multitude were furious against them, so as neither to pity the tender years of the boy nor to respect the, the, the sex of the woman. Accordingly, they exposed them to every terror and inflicted on them every torture, repeatedly trying to compel them to swear. But they failed in effecting this, for Ponticus, encouraged by his sister, so plainly indeed that even the heathen saw that it was she that encouraged and confirmed him, after enduring nobly every kind of torture, gave up the ghost. While the blessed Blandina, last of all, after having, like a noble mother, encouraged her children and sent them on before her, victorious to the king, trod the same path of conflict which her children had trod, hastening on to them with joy and exultation at her departure, not as one thrown to the wild beasts, but as one invited to a marriage supper. And after she had been scourged 
and exposed the wild beast and roasted in the iron chair. And he was at last enclosed in a net and cast before a bowl. And after having been well tossed by the bowl, though without having any feeling of what was happening to her, through her hope and firm hold of what had been entrusted to her and her converse with Christ, she also was sacrificed. The the heathens themselves acknowledging that never among them did a woman endure so many in such fearful torture. So, this is Blandina, an old, frail, slave woman, yet a conqueror in Christ, and our dear sister. She and the boy Ponticus and the new Christian and the deacon and everyone else mentioned in this account, they died happy in Christ, despite the tortures and even because of them. They were earnest to endure for Christ's sake for the joy set before them, just as Christ was pleased to endure the cross for the joy set before him in the triune God and at the place of exaltation at the Father's right hand. So what about us? What joy is set before you when it comes to serving and even suffering for the Lord that you have not yet taken hold of? Do you and I see Christ as the greatest treasure? Do we count it a privilege to serve him and suffer for him so that our brethren might be encouraged and that the world might see a powerful witness of the truth and glory of Christ? Are we doing that? Are we faithful in that? Or do we settle for the dull and deadly joys of passing idols. The early martyrs were glad to overcome the world and its deceptive treasures by suffering for Jesus. Let's join with them. Let's join with them and all the saints of the scriptures that Hebrews talks about. Let's join with Paul. Let's join with Peter. Let's join with Timothy. All our brothers and sisters of times past, suffering with them, suffering for the Lord, no longer being ashamed of Jesus before our own hostile culture. We can be sure that in the end, even though we suffer, even though we die, we actually triumph in Christ. The Lord's church will continue. The Lord's elect will still be saved, and we will receive the crown with our brethren in glory. Well, next week, uh, I guess I, had a, I thought I had a slide back up. Next week, we talk about a massive change that took place for the church at the end of the, or rather the beginning of the fourth century. That is, persecution ended. There was an official edict of toleration for Christians. More than that, Roman society is about to become Christian. And while in many ways this was a triumph and blessing to the church, in other ways it was a problem and even a curse for the church. We'll talk about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord,
we are so encouraged, even as we are grieved to hear about these brothers and sisters martyred in the past. Lord, how vicious, how nonsensical, how evil was the persecution arrayed against them, as every persecution is arranged against you and your church. But Lord, they persevered. Many of them didn't, Lord. They conquered. They had joy in suffering for you. Lord, we are so fearful sometimes of just merely a, a hostile word or glance from people. We don't even want to bring up things spiritual for fear of a negative reaction. But let us no longer be ashamed, God. As, as Mark mentioned, if we deny you, you will deny us. That's not consistent with what our confession. Lord, let us gladly confess you before men and even proclaim the gospel so that others may be saved and they might have a hope that goes beyond this world into death, beyond death and into eternity. Help us do this. We can only do this by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.